a long history, great commercial success, uh, a track record of innovation mean almost nothing in a highly disrupted space um, where the next great innovation will be amplified through social mechanisms. This is the Brilliance Leadership Learning Podcast, sharing thought-provoking content and discussions to enhance your leadership development journey. Be sure to subscribe to get notified of new episodes. Here are your hosts, Chantal Nash and Gary Norton from the digital learning team at Crotonville, GE's Global Learning Institute. Hey, Chantel, how excited are you about this podcast? I'm really excited, Gary, uh, because it's funny. Um, in elementary school, we took a class where we had to script a radio show, and me and my friends would go home afterward uh, and, you know, record songs on the radio onto a tape to kind of piece together our show. So long story short, uh, this is really exciting. I'm really happy that we're able to do something like this now for GE and to share with the rest of the world as well. So how do you feel about sharing with the world? And and just so you know, I kind of randomly called Gary and asked if he'd be on this podcast with me. So I may just be dragging him along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, when you first called me, I thought you just wanted me to do the introductory uh, statements for, for the podcast. <laughs> oh, no. I didn't realize I was going to become a permanent fixture on the show. So note to everybody listening, this, you know, if you don't hear Gary in some future episodes, you know what happened to him. I'm actually only kidding. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think this would be a good opportunity. I'm glad you did reach out and get to me. Good. Glad to hear that you don't hate me. Uh, so what we're really here for, this podcast is intended to be an extension of what we're doing within GE, both for GE employees and for folks outside of GE through a platform that we call Brilliant You. And it's all about leadership learning, which will cover a great range of topics. So that's things that maybe we are working on specifically, but there's also a lot of other topics that we just want to discuss, get some experts on those topics, leadership experts, as well as domain experts. And we really just hope that you can learn something from this too. And as we reflect with each other and hopefully start a dialogue around these things, we can all advance ourselves, whether it's with your job, whether it's in your personal life, there will be something for everybody. GE has a long history of this type of ongoing learning, from opening the first corporate learning center in Crotonville, New York, to now where we have regional learning centers globally. We serve so many employees and customers of GE, so having this will really help to connect people and ideas together. Um, so Gary, what, what do you hope to share? Well, I'm not so sure that I will be the source of sharing. I think I'll be the one of the people sitting learning from the guests that we'll be interviewing and the topics that we'll be covering. But it would be good if listeners, you know, walked away with um, some value from from the podcast, whether it's, uh, you know, something that they can take in their personal life or something that they can uh, apply to their everyday tasks at work and maybe provide a different outlook and insight. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more on that. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode, which is the first in a special three-part series on social leadership. Leaders have historically been defined by their personal qualities and behaviors, but over the years, it's become clear that the surrounding environment and how a leader adapts to different contexts is critical to their effectiveness. As the world becomes more networked and social through technology, leaders need to reevaluate the context they work within and the tools and skills they use to make an impact. GE has been experimenting with social technologies in many different ways. 
leadership blogs, knowledge communities, an internal social platform, and the new performance development approach is even more social and informal than it has ever been. For many leaders, both within and outside of GE, there are a ton of cultural changes happening that have both great advantages and challenges. We are thrilled to have Julian Stodd here to help us talk specifically about the concept of social leadership, communities, and how technology can either aid or distract from our goals. Julian is the author of the Social Leadership Handbook and founder of SeaSaltLearning.com, a consultancy focused on helping business leaders make sense of the social age and the opportunities it brings. Julian describes himself as curious about learning in all its forms, and his current efforts center around the strategy and implementation of learning, leadership, and cultural change. So, Julian, welcome. Um, would you add anything else to that introduction? Well, that was a very kind introduction. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you didn't just stop at saying Julian describes himself as curious, because <laughs> maybe that's not the worst thing to be. <laughs> no, absolutely not. So then tell us a little bit more about your background. So how did you get into this field? What kind of things motivated to work in this space? When I was reading your background, you have kind of a really interesting mix of, of history. Yeah, well, it's, it, you know, you put, you put a polite spin on, on the curse of the generalist, you know, so I'm, I'm in, in, in lucky, <laughs> lucky space of having dipped into many fields. But of course, the, the biggest blessing that gives us is ignorance. Um, I've been through fields as broad as archaeology, material science, um, but often with a, a central theme around storytelling and communication and, and learning itself. So be that the challenges of explaining history to school children or the challenges of explaining to people on an oil rig, you know, how to how to replace a malfunctioning valve. Um, there are common themes about the ways we share stories, the ways we communicate, the ways we learn. And of course, fundamentally, the the things that prevent us from learning. So I'm, I'm lucky to be a generalist. Um, I'm lucky to have worked in both technical and creative spaces and to have never had a, a sort of a, a proper job to teach me how things should be done. Um, I've just been lucky enough to learn from great people who know how things actually get done. So, you know, I guess that's the the challenge one always feels being outside organizations is you, you you lack the opportunity to be in one place for 15 years and develop that really deep understanding. But you counter that with the ability to work with dozens of different organizations around the world and to realize where the similarities lie between them. Because fundamentally, we're talking about human systems. You know, we can talk about technology, and, and I know that we'll get onto that. But technology is kind of secondary to how people come together to learn, to work, to perform, uh, to nurture and console each other, to challenge and support each other. So I guess everything I do has, has touched upon that, you know, throughout quite a, a broad history of what we could charitably describe as a career. So I find that being a generalist also is very valuable. I mean, for me personally, I can also identify with having a varied career path and career interests. So I can see where being an expert is very useful, but I've also seen where experts can get blinded really by their expertise. So the fact that you've carried your experiences into a generalist role for the purpose of helping people on their leadership journey and their organizational effectiveness, I think really makes a lot of sense. Gary, you probably have had similar experiences, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, in fact, when uh, Julian was talking about being a generalist, it made me think about uh, my my career path. And I thought if somebody looked at my CV, they would definitely say I had career ADD because I you would look at it and think that I 
couldn't link those things together, but uh, I was always somebody who was taught very early on, as long as you're doing something and learning a transferable skill from that particular job that you're doing, you're doing good and working on a wide breadth of um, of skill sets that you're building as, is just as valuable, if not more in some cases, than going deep in a domain expertise. But there is a need for both. Would you say, have you, re I guess, recognized any specific rewards from that, from having that kind of range of experience? Well, yeah, internally, specifically in GE, being in GE for, I think, 28 or maybe 29 years now, and I've worked in multiple businesses, what it has afforded me is being able to change jobs, a lot of them laterally, and that's okay with me because I was able to transfer a certain set of skills into this new job and then pick up a certain set of skills within that new job, which, you know, gave me a little bit more to then move on and in some cases move up. I can really identify with that too. And at the same time, it kind of is a testament to how uh, job titles can box us in as well. I know often, even within our own organizations, it can be hard to explain what we do, uh, let alone externally, right? Because we, we wear so many hats at so many different times. Probably even those of us that do have a specific expertise, there are a lot of skills we have that are different than our, quote, area of expertise. And in our daily jobs, we may use many of these regularly. And so really it becomes, you know, is this defining what I am or not? And from an organizational perspective, um, it's important to think in, in a wider and more agile way. Yeah. And, you know, when, when I was mentioning skill sets, uh, one of those skill sets is being able to take one of your previous experiences, whether it is a, a true skill, but take a situation you were in and either how you solved it or the organization was able to do something and solve it. And you bring that with you and you have that experience where you're called upon or asked an opinion on, you know, how would you approach the solution to this? It may not be something you directly built yourself, but you saw how it was done. And then that can be a translatable solution in, in your new uh, endeavor. We build skills, maybe, and people call it tribal knowledge. And a lot of times that term is used to, to indicate that there is certain information that is held within a tribe and not shared outside that tribe. But once a tribe member leaves, he takes that tribal knowledge and it starts to spread. And, you know, in some way, shape or form, I can't help but think that that is part of the social learning mix that is evident these days. And so it permeates so deeply and so quickly with the advent of the technology that we're using. Yeah, a lot of times we think we know, you know what the problems are or where the gaps are from what we're observing or seeing from, a, from our particular perspective, but what's actually wrong or what's actually happening is different. And so, you know, as Julian talks about being able to kind of see different things from different perspectives, that has helped him identify truly how things are actually getting done versus somebody's perspective of how they should get done or maybe what those problems are within those processes preventing things from getting done effectively and all of those sort of things but i think that how those messages get carried on and, and through an or between people and through an organization is really important and julian can you tell us a little bit more about what the social age means and maybe we can then go into a deeper discussion on how all of this works in the organization i sort of came across this term to talk about the social age and, and, if it, and indeed when i write about it i say that's because we're we're beyond the digital age you know not it's not to say mm -hmm. we're not on the very edge of discovering all these amazing pieces of technology and what they can do for us 
the reason I say we're, we're sort of through the, 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 the digital age and into the social age is because we're now connected. We're connected in so many ways. I was really struck uh, yesterday. I, I was sat in a cafe and there, it's the school holidays over here in England. And, and there were two girls sat next to me. They were 15 or 16, I'd imagine. And at that age, you typically have a career counsellor who uh, sort of tells you the kind of things you may want to do, the kind of subjects you may want to study, the kind of formal qualifications you'll want, the kind of career path that stretches in front of you. And yet, as I was sat there trying to write about leadership, uh, one was saying to the other, uh, they were sharing Instagram accounts, and she was saying, you know, so this is my plan. I'm going to, I've got my network of people here. I think what I'm going to do when I leave school is I'm going to go to London. I'm going to get spotted for a modeling agency. I'm going to do that for a while. And then I'm going to go back and I'm going to do some other education. And I could hear them reeling off all of these things that um, their parents or their career counselors would probably roll their eyes at. And then a really interesting thing happened. Um, one of them said to the other, I'm going to give you a shout out on Instagram to my followers. And the other girl was really grateful. She was saying, oh, you know, thank you. That's really kind of you. And of mm -hmm. course, what we're seeing uh, is, is, is real interplay of social connections. And of course, it's those social connections that are the reasons that we've met. It's the reasons that they will stay connected, even if they become geographically separated. And it speaks of the fundamental uh, system we're in today in the social age where technology is democratized, communication is democratized, it's everywhere. You know, we're spoiled by infrastructure. So on the one hand, we've got this enabling impact of technology. The mm -hmm. challenge for organizations is that they're very often built upon outdated models. So a, a long history, great commercial success, uh, a track record of innovation mean almost nothing in a highly disrupted space. Um, where the next great innovation will not only come from some guys and girls in a garage somewhere, but will be crowdfunded, will be amplified through social mechanisms, and may well disrupt or entirely ignore a business model which we believe is concrete and established, and may just turn out, in the view of history, to have been transient. So, Julian, uh, that was extremely interesting to me, um, especially around the, the two girls at the cafe. Um, it reminded me of my daughters and, you know, I couldn't help but think with all of the, the structure in my formal education and then in my career with GE and just learning and executing things in a certain way and methodical fashion, that just seemed like such haphazard career planning it was making me uneasy to hear that but i realized that when they made that immediate connection and then sent it out on one of the digital networks that that was permeating it was being picked up by multiple people and moved around and probably within the in the hour that person was getting some responses or connections which is fantastic and uh, i know people like me uh, we just have to try to open our brains to saying hey this is you know a great thing and we just have to understand how to harness and use it going forward i'm going to add on to that gary and i kind of want to play devil's advocate here and bring up, you know, companies like GE stay around because they've learned to adapt to a changing world in these ways, right? It's very, there's been a lot of different instances over history where the space has been disrupted in one way or another. 
and you know companies got weeded out they they couldn't keep up or they didn't meet the changing world's requirements so if i had to just probe you a little bit i mean do you think that what julian has said about the social age is a greater challenge than other challenges of the past maybe well you know i guess greater is is the key word there i think in the past uh before we had mobile phones and pagers i mean the challenge was uh miles and now the challenge is minds right so we're no yeah. we're no longer constricted by the miles between the teacher and the learner right we're just constricted by maybe the people who are saying this is not a good way to learn or this is not how we've done it in the past and we have to change sure. the minds you know, now that the miles are out of the way, we have to change the mind saying that this is absolutely a good way to learn. And plus, everyone learns differently. Yeah. And I know Julian has some stuff to say about that, too. So, Julian, if you had to say, what skills do leaders need to be successful in the social age? What would those skills be? What would you say about that? Well, I'll have to, I'll have to sort of answer in two ways. One is about, you know, fundamentally the question of what is leadership today? And then the other is within the you know, context of social leadership, what skills do we need? I generally see organizations you know, as an entity through two lenses. One is the formal lens. And the formal lens is everything that's under our control. It's the buildings, it's the computers and the telephones, it's the systems, processes, the induction programs, the management development pieces, all that kind of stuff. It's embedded in the formal hierarchy of the organization. And the people who are at the top of any particular tree in that organizational structure are the people that we call the leaders. So that's the formal system. We've always had that. We still need it. The challenge is it can give us diminishing returns in the social age because so much of the sense-making that we do takes place in our community spaces. In parallel to that formal system, we have the social system. And the social system is a reputation-based economy. It's independent of any technologies or communication channels. It certainly doesn't worry about brand guidelines. It's not all that bothered about the walls of the organization. So we're members of many communities. Our standing within those communities is based upon our humility, our enthusiasm, our expertise, our empathy, our ability to add value to others in simple terms. And that community will stay with us often through life whilst jobs will come and go. Indeed, we're likely to be members of many different communities. Strong social leaders will also start communities and will be brave enough to disengage from certain communities if they're no longer adding value to them or if they're no longer adding value into the community. So let's take that as a foundation that within any organization, you'll have these formal and social layers. The biggest challenge for the organization is to recognize that much of the leadership it needs may lie outside the formal structure of leadership. So the organization needs to identify, recognize, and reward its social leaders and innovators. When we then look at the skills required for social leadership, they're often, I usually say that social leadership is very fluid. It's a very agile and dynamic uh, state. So occasionally we need strong leadership. We need people that can step up to the front and say, follow me. And we're talking about people who are nurturing others, supporting others, helping develop the social capital of a population. They may be storytellers who help other people to share their story. They may be the people that offer challenge or original knowledge, the, the people who help them to be effective. And that's really the progression to, to social leadership is choosing your space, curating your space. What do you want to be known for? And what will that look like? What will your voice sound like if it's authentic in that space? 
how synchronous will you be in your response to things? If you try to keep on top of everything, you'll simply fail. Where will we bring new knowledge? You know, we, we choose a space. We learn the skills to operate in that space. We choose which communities we'll be in. And then we get to a really key part of social leadership, which is that our actions lead to reputation in the social space. And social reputation leads to social authority. And that's at the crux of the, the, the space that organizations find themselves in. Formal leadership is that which is bestowed upon you by the organization, is codified into the organizational hierarchy, and comes with this sort of ultimate sanction of, because I told you so. Social leadership, by contrast, is contextual, is consensual of the community, is awarded to us by the community, and can be taken away from us by the community. And it's, it's, lead, yeah, it's leading through consent. So there's no strong lever of power. The interesting thing is that I would argue in the real world, if you like, there's also no strong lever of power anymore because people understand that their career is going to be fragmented. That any organization that says to you, do your job, just keep quiet, don't pipe up and complain, and in 15 years' time, you may achieve this goal. Nobody believes that anymore. <laughs> so that, you know, that's why we have to, to have both, to recognize both. We still need formal leadership, but we can only become what I'd call socially dynamic as an organization if we, if we recognize and enable uh, social leadership. Something that you said, Julian, about the different types of influence and the different types of social interaction, I guess, really struck home for me because we've tried to build a contributor program with our internal blogs. And the idea is to encourage other people to write and get their thoughts out there and almost crowdsource alternate ideas or supporting ideas, whichever people think about that particular topic. And the perspective is that having influence is not one thing. So somebody often might look at influence as something where they're put in the spotlight and shy away from it. But we're trying to support the idea through this through our organization that you can be somebody who is influential because you're the first person to try new things and other people look to you for your opinion on that because they know you've tried it. Or that someone may be influential very much so because they are in a position of power that people inherently respect. Or that they may be influential because they have a certain expertise. So it's not that it's one thing and the social element of people learning and sharing with each other to advance the whole is critical, I think, to organizations. And when people hear that we want to be more social, they kind of shy away from that. But in reality, it means different things. And for an organization to try and present that to people in an effective way so that they can reward people in, in different ways that they like to be rewarded is, I think, paramount to those efforts. Would you agree with that, Julian? Yeah, I mean, you, you touch upon a range of important points. So for sure, it's, it's not one thing nor the other. So I would argue that social leadership isn't, isn't a fad. It's not a trend. It's not about social media. It's a fundamental evolution of the ecosystem that we live in. So mm -hmm. fundamentally, things like knowledge has changed away from being static, accreted, and held within knowledge management systems and books to being co-created, dynamic, adaptive, and often evolutionary as it goes. So far more, you know, far more dynamic in its response. Leadership itself has changed, as we've said, away from being purely formal and empowered by sort of a threatened position alone towards being consensual and contextual. So we need both. The, the kicker for organizations is that the formal aspects are giving a diminishing return. To give you an idea, I was uh, talking 
to the, the, the exec group in a, in a oil company this week. And they were describing their development program for uh, new starters. And it maps out the first three years. It was a great program. You know, it, I really liked it, what they'd done. But I'd have liked it more if we'd been having the conversation 15 years ago. And the response they were getting from people was interesting, but also highly predictable. And that was very high engagement at the start. And then people remained engaged, but they started to say, it's not quite what I'm after at this stage. Uh, I don't think I need to do this module, but can I have a look at that other module? And what you were really seeing there was a transition from the highly relevant, contemporary and useful to a hungry new starter towards the amused tolerance of a group of people who are just waiting to sit it out to get the certificate at the end. Because mm -hmm. in the meantime, they've become highly adept at learning socially through that, that hidden layer of the organization. The longer a program goes on, if we retain formal control over the structure, the more divergent it will be from how we really learn. You know, so if I need to, I had to change the oil on, I've got a 52 year old Land Rover and I'm mechanically inept. So I had to change the oil on it the other day. Of course, I just Googled it. I saw the YouTube video. I ordered the tool I needed online. I made a pretty bodged job of, of, of doing it. But the point was, I learned in the moment. I used socially filtered and moderated sources, but I didn't continue to watch those videos. You know, I could have done. There were videos that would teach me how to do every other aspect of engine maintenance, but I'm just, I'm just not interested. I don't need to know it. I don't need to know it now. All I need to do is know that I have some people in my network who are competent, who can tell me if I'm going wildly off track, and that I have the technology to give me access um, to those sources. I also, actually back to your skill of a strong social leader, I have to understand validity. I have to understand how good is the information I'm finding? What does socially moderated scoring look like? So it's no coincidence, actually, that when I needed to uh, also reach out to an engineer, I went with the one who had 495 social reviews. Right, yeah. I had a conversation with a friend saying, it's because I don't think they can have cheated it 495 times. The other instance, <laughs> you know, I've got a friend who's a mechanic, and I remember having a rather patronizing conversation with him when, uh, when he was starting to trade online using eBay. And uh, I thought I'd better give him some survival tips about how to ensure he gets reviews from his customers. But what I hadn't counted on was that he and his mates had figured it out in a matter of days and had spent a few weeks giving each other positive social reviews. You know, they'd oh, wow. figured it out. They'd cheated the system. They wouldn't describe themselves as technologists, but they, right. you know, they're not stupid people. So they figured out the social aspects of the system fast. But these are the survival skills that we, that we need. Absolutely. And unfortunately, we're at the end of our time, but I do want to continue this discussion with you, Julian, on communities, influence within communities, how communities are created. So we're really looking forward to continuing that conversation with you. That sounds great. You can follow Julian on Twitter at Julian S-T-O-D-D. You can also subscribe to his blog and pick up the Social Leadership Handbook. Thanks for listening, and if you liked the show, be sure to leave us a review, share with your friends and colleagues, and drop us a note with your feedback. You can also find us at soundcloud.com slash brilliance leadership learning. <laughs>